Series 5 was recorded in March 2021 over the internet. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to a special series of the Rural Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast in association with the Stuckermarkt of Berlin Theatre Treffen with me, Simon Stevens. For 65 years, the Rural Court Theatre in London has led the world in the production of new plays and the discovery and championing of new playwrights. The Stucker Market of the Theatre Treffen is an annual gathering of new writers and theatre makers. Every year since 1978, writers are chosen by Stucker Market jurors from hundreds of applications to visit Berlin and perform, talk about and celebrate their work. With the 2019 Stuckermark, the competition was launched for the first time worldwide. In this short series of podcasts, the Royal Court Theatre and the Stuckermark collaborate for the first time. This year, as Berlin, like the rest of the world, manages the fallout of the COVID-19 pandemic, the six writers whose work has been chosen will be discussing their work in this special series of five hour-long online conversations. The summaries on the US New Play database, New Play Exchange, of the four plays listed there by New York-based writer Sam Max, written over the last five years, return to a curious description. Their reimagining of Russian folktale Pyotr and the Wolf, hormone-fueled musical piece Twin Size Beds, apocalyptic breakup play Driftwood, and Jura's selection for the 2020-21 Stuckermark Coop are all described as dark comedies. I understand that such databases are dependent on simplification and that Sam Max is another artist in this selection that is new to me, but to describe Coop, their poetic, haunting exploration of the yearning of a teenage girl in a nightmare of familial imprisonment as a dark comedy seems to me to miss its force. It does have at least three jokes that made me laugh out loud when I read it, but it is so much darker and stranger than the generic description implies. Sam Max was born in Pennsylvania and graduated from the theatre department of the University of Evansville in Indiana. Since moving to New York, they have won the Robert Chesley Victor Bumbalo Playwriting Award, received an honourable mention for the Relentless Award, and were named a member of the Young and Hungry list, tracking Hollywood's top 100 new writers. Sam's work has been presented at Under the Radar Festival, National Sawdust, and by the Museum of Sex at the celebrated Joe's Pub. They've been a resident artist at the Public Theatre and have received awards from the Elena Verlitzer Foundation and the Foundation for Contemporary Arts. Coop, on one level, is the story of Avery, a girl who lives on a farm, finds herself trapped in ritualised acts enacted by her parents and isolated from the outside world. Her resistance to this isolation and entrapment result in a murderous pact that echoes across the rural farmland that Max imagines their drama to play out in. But that synopsis does the play slight service. It is a play that blurs realities between a rural economic objectivity and the imaginative terrain of Avery's mind. It's set on a farmland where no farm life seems to survive. It's a story that plays out on a tarnished landscape of prayer and ritual in which the family survive entirely on a diet of eggs. It's a play of blood and violence and stillness defined by dream images and in which the dead lose contact with us as though we're speaking to them on an unrealizable phone signal. 
It reads as though Harmony Kareen had staged Beckett's endgame on the landscape of Terence Malick's Badlands. I loved its exploration of language. It's one of several pieces this Stuckermark that seems to stage characters desperate to try to find the right word for their experience. Sam Max is in the early years of their working life, but judging from the level of interest their work has provoked and from the depth and clarity of imagination that defines Coop, they are one of those writers whose work over the coming decade has the potential to allow us to reimagine ourselves as we come out of the pandemic. Sam Max, welcome to the Royal Court Playwrights Podcast and welcome to the Stuckermarkt. Thank you. That's so sweet. Uh, that's the best part of this podcast. Um. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. It's, it's always daunting um, speaking to people who who I've not met before, whose work I don't know. But I, I so loved reading your your play, and I, I hope I managed to do you some kind of service. Yeah, well, I love the Harmony Korean reference. That's like... Oh, I was really nervous <laughs> about putting that in. I'm, yeah, yeah. I, I I so Harmony Kareen's really really complex because I'm I'm not a fan of the films of Larry Clark but Harmony Kareen I think is a poet it's an absolutely extraordinary totally. artist yeah and and I was really I was really put in mind of 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 of, of those films when I was reading your play I always start sorry are you going to say something about Harmony Kareen no. or <laughs> I always start these conversations with the same question um, which is when did you first go to the theatre. Yeah, I, um, I know this section of the podcast because um, I'm a fan and I, uh, I don't have a, I don't, I, everyone really has these like very lucid first moments and yeah. I think that I, I think I don't. Um, I, right. I, I remember a few, I, I, the, the earliest memories I have are um, on VHS. I had a, a VHS of the show Riverdance Um that I, I watched religiously every night, which if you don't know Riverdance, it's um, Irish step dancing, the arms are glued to the side, everyone's in a line. It's really f- kind of like fast patterns and colors. Yeah. And that was the coolest it's thing. Yeah. An amazing, amazing kind of balletic dancing as well. That step dancing is extraordinary, right? Uh, um, I guess so. Yeah, it's, it seems really <laughs> athletic. It can, I mean, it was, on the, it was on the TV in the living room constantly. And I feel like if that wasn't an indicator of my homosexuality at the age of five, I don't really <laughs> know what was. And, and I was recreating, I was trying to recreate the choreography on my friends um, in the, on the playground. But so there was that, and, and I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and there's not really kind of a there's a there's a there's a culture there, and theater is being made. Um, but I was kind of taken to the local universities and colleges uh, to see the kind of like experimental work that the students were making. <laughs> um, so, um, one of the first things I saw was like this uh, experimental and that uh, dance interpretation of. Franz Kafka's The, the Metamorphosis. <laughs> and that, that, that was a lot of, great. yeah, a lot of kind of like <laughs> rolling on the floor um, and, and the costumes kind of like clicking on the ground and the audience being in the dark. And I think my, uh, my dad or someone wanted to take me out because they thought it was going to be too scary for me. And I, I, I was like, I'm staying. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> 
I really love the idea. Often when I ask these questions to people, um, the, however accidentally or tangentially, their answers kind of do reveal something uh, of, 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 of their kind of future interests. And I, I really love the idea that there's a future interest of yours that might explore some kind of synthesis between an experimental exploration of metamorphosis and river dance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way, that's kind of uh, my artistic statement. I don't need to go any further. Everything, <laughs> everything in a way is a cross-pollination of those two and, and comes back to that intersection, I will say with Ernest. <laughs> what was Pittsburgh like? Um, it was a, a difficult place to grow up, I, I think, socially for me. And... Um, yeah, on many levels, it uh, was uh, torturous, I guess, with, <laughs> at the risk of sounding, sounding pretty um, hyperbolic. It was a pretty desolate area to grow up mm. in and um, not desolate in what? terms of people, but culturally a little bit. Yeah. yeah. What, 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 um, because I kind of assumed that like, uh, you, you were probably like born in like 2016 or something. Everybody seems so fucking. I was born in nowadays. 2017, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but, um, was this, is the kind of end, the, the, the first years of this century, was it, or the, the 90s you're in, you were, you're in? I was born in 1995. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have, uh, it's, I guess that's an interesting thing because I, I feel like one way in which, I differ from my peers who are my age is that, well, millennials are said to kind of like have known the world before and after the internet, I suppose. And yep. I, I really know that distinction because I also wasn't allowed internet in my house until uh, I went to college really, or the, the later years of high school, which um, was unusual for people my age. And I think it yeah. Uh, it also, I think, is one of the reasons I um, had such a deep, overwhelming sense of imagination was because I um, was in a situation in which I was hyper aware of the fact that I wasn't able to communicate with my peers in the way that they were communicating with each other or in the way that I sensed they were communicating with each other which my impression of that was that they were in contact constantly and, and meeting up at the mall and that wasn't really you know, part of my, um, the social fabric of my youth. It's really fascinating, the idea of being slightly out of step with your peers in terms of uh, social technology and inter inter internet technology. The, uh, go on. Yeah, I, um, yeah I, I, when I went to college, I got a smartphone and it felt like a second puberty in a way, which I guess isn't a, um, like... <laughs> <laughs> something I don't know that pe that people who grew up without cell phones, you know, that is just kind of a a, a piece of their life that happens. But I I went to school and and was like learning about texting and and what is texting etiquette and um, well, it, it became really traumatic for me. I think like coming coming late to the game, showing up late. That's that's a kind of fascinating complex trauma. I'm suddenly <laughs> put in mind of uh, 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 like. Lou Reed and Lou Reed and John Cale made an album in 1990, I think, about Andy Warhol, uh, uh, and that, that it's called Songs for Dreller, and it's the whole life of Andy Warhol. And the first song is a song called Small Town, and it's a song about Pittsburgh, right? Uh, yeah, because, yeah. Because Warhol came from Pittsburgh, mm -hmm. 
Uh, and uh, the last couplet on the song is there's one, there's only one good thing about a small town. You hate it and you know you're going to leave. <laughs> I, don't know if you, I don't know if you know that song. Yeah, yeah. But do you know the song? I don't do know, you know the song, do, but I relate to the right. sentiment deeply. Yeah. I related to that growing up in Stockport. I just thought I'm going to get out of here. And it really drove me to create. Did you feel that that need to get out as a teenager? Yeah, I think so. I, I think before I was a teenager, I think it was really, really apparent to me when I was very young that, I mean, for a variety of reasons, I think my the household I grew up in also wasn't the most comfortable place on earth. And um, there were power dynamics in the household that I think were, were really, um, you know, seared into my emotional terrain. And um, yeah, I knew that I wanted I, I knew my earliest memories are knowing that I wanted to leave and, and to pursue theater and performance. Who was it who took you to the experimental theater? Was your daddy who used to take you to the, see that stuff? Was theater a thing in your family? I think it's my mom's influence, really. I mean, my um, my dad is very much not an artist, uh, but my mom is is a closeted one in a way, and she 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 um, is a is a businesswoman. She runs a hospital, um, and so I, from a very young age, was seeing this woman who's extremely powerful um, and has a board and a staff and. Um, and is doing really important work with children and newborns. Mm. And um, she, I was, so I was watching this woman and she also in a way was like drawing at the kitchen table. And um, we had this box of like uh, Play-Doh uh, like that you put in the oven and bake it into solid things that she would bring out and put on the table. And we were like, yeah. we were sculpting food out of it. Um, and so she, yeah. that was kind of her influence. And she has always been extremely encouraging of, my artistic nature and um and still is yeah was it always theater or were you interested in, i mean now you're a musician as well and you you've been a, you worked as a set designer as well am i right in that yeah yeah i kind of did well <laughs> so i went to acting school um in mm. indiana so it's a conservatory program and i was doing shakespeare uh there for four years and I kind of tell people that my experience of it was that I um, specialized in characters who look like they just came in from working in the field. So that was my kind of um, specialty was uh, farmhands, shepherds, um, the people in Chekhov plays that are constantly on the brink of um, wanting to commit suicide. Um, and so those were, uh, uh, you know, some of those are fun roles, but I was also feeling extremely stifled and I was feeling more and more like I didn't want to be someone who was so interpretive. I felt liberated in a lot of the acting education, but I, 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 I realized halfway through my education there that I, I wanted to be a generative artist and be the person who's making the worlds. Yeah. What, so what did you do with that impulse? I, um, I think I went to the head of my department and said, I don't want to be in plays anymore or something like that. <laughs> and he was unhappy with me. And, um, and there is something that at the University of Evansville you can do, which is that in the last year of um, college, there are two students who are chosen to direct these like major productions in the studio theater basically and so you put together an application of plays and, and production concepts and it's this it's this arduous process and you turn it in and then or maybe it's not for some people for me it, it took up like two and a half weeks of my life because I really wanted to do it and then um, I turned in 
a production con we ended up landing on a production concept for Sarah Rule's adaptation of Orlando, um, which is about, you know, this figure who begins uh their life as a man and then um and goes mm. through many, many centuries and ends their life in the 1920s as a woman. And it's just this like yeah. it's this unbelievable material. And I I felt lucky to get to work on that. And so then I left school, and I, I but I didn't have the impulse to be a playwright. I thought maybe I'd be a director. And then um, in the in the week after leaving university, I had I was killing time at my my, my mom's house before I um, was. I had a job teaching abroad, and that was when I wrote my first play, which is called Pitter and the Wolf. I, I think I, there were these many things I had been thinking about for many months, and um, it just kind of the space of of being post-graduation and not really knowing what I was doing allowed me to create this thing that um, when I look at it, feels extremely unwieldy, feels extremely disobedient to the kind of play structures we were taught in school. And um, I'm really protective of that script. Um, mm. And then I, I'm, I taught abroad, I moved to the city, I did this workshop with like seven actors and I think I paid them all like $8 to be um, in this workshop for a week of the script. And then um, there, there was an agency calling like a month later. Uh, Good God. It, uh, which was terrifying, yeah. That's an extraordinarily accelerated process of writing a play in a week and then, and, 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 and then you're getting agents yeah. chasing you after a month. Can we slow down just a little bit? Because I would love to hear your thoughts on Indiana and what it was like to be there. I've never been to, to Indiana. But I know the... Am I right in thinking that some of the landscape there has kind of percolated in some way into Cooper? Am I confusing this with with, with other, other places? No, you're not confusing. My geography is no, no. very ignorant. <laughs> well, the United States is huge. And, um, it's massive, It's massive, right? and yeah. I'm like, oh, wow, people in Los Angeles are the same distance from me as people in, you know, like the depths of Europe. So, um, yeah. yeah, the uh, Indiana, the landscape of it is is you know, twice as desolate as Pittsburgh. It, I, you know, like, and mm. I describe Pittsburgh as desolate, but, you know, geographically, I was in the suburbs. I was in close proximity to right. a city. Evansville is a town, and it's um, yeah. it's in a really red state. It's, uh, you know, surrounded by Republicans. And, mm. um, yeah, it, it, uh, it's an interesting place to go to school to make theater. I think I yeah. learned while I was I'm there. I'm really fascinated. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's really evident that my university is the cultural center in terms of theater performance uh, of right. that town. And yeah. the subscriber base there is what keeps the ticket sales of the department afloat. So there's this really direct... Um, I was observing when I got there, which I don't think I would have had the chance to observe in, a Pits in Pittsburgh, which was a larger city, but I was observing the ways in which this theater was um, a civic center of, yeah. of the community and the stories we were telling, you know, like the, the reverberations of what stories we were telling and why and, and the kind of performances people were watching, the, the echoes of it were extremely clear and direct in the population. Wow, that's really remarkable, isn't it? You know, kind of working in New York or me working in London now, sometimes it can feel that we can shout extremely loud and it reverberates nowhere outside the theatres that we're in. But to work in a town where where you can see the effects on, on the lives of the town, I think it's really, there's something really powerful about that. 
Yeah, I think so. Um, I And I think you're right about New York. I mean, I this has been my playground in terms of making new work for the past few years before the pandemic. And um, it is really exciting to be around so much work. And I think it accelerates the rigor of the artistic exploration because it, it, it is kind of this culture in which there's so much work being made. So everyone is trying to innovate from a really different direction. And, right. and the voices that are really clear, I think, are the ones that become heard or the voices that are the clearest. Um, mm. What I don't respond to necessarily is the ways in which like the race against each other feels like it reflects capitalism in some way. And um, yeah, it's really tiresome and fatiguing, I think. And I can make yeah. a play about my gender experience. And there are also, you know, 80 other plays with, you know, trans casts that are happening um, in the same span of six <laughs> months, which is, just, it's an unbelievable thing and really exciting, but it's also kind of, I think there's this real question of what anyone has to say anymore in this city. When did you move there? When did you move to New York? Um, I moved here in 2017. Um, New York's a hard city for playwrights, I think. It's a city that celebrates its own theatricality and its theatrical history. But the, the, as you say, the, the competitiveness uh, and the amount of people writing for theatre and making theatre is almost kind of overwhelming within, you know, sometimes the island feels a compressed space. Um, going, from, going from Indiana to New York, what would, tell me a little bit about that experience. Yeah, um, well, I had a bit of a, um, a buffer between the two. Mm. I hadn't made the decision to come to New York until... I think a few days before I graduated, really, um, I thought maybe I would move back to Pittsburgh and make theater there because it was a place that I had a relationship to. And um, mm. and it felt as though while I was growing up there, you know, there are enough artists creating where I would have a community, but I would be able to make work and I think really um, be able to be heard in a different way in that city. But, yeah. you know, I chose New York because I, I think I had dreams very young of being a person who lived in New York and had a, you know, like a really rich community of artists and queer people that I could be friends with. And, and so I felt like I owed it to that uh, smaller version of myself to move there. Um, mm. but, but, but between Indiana and Brooklyn, I, um, I had this really bizarre teaching job that took me to France and then Romania and then Indonesia. Wow. Um, and I, it was a, it was a real gift to do. And it was with, a Basically, it's um, a summer, it's a devised summer camp that uh, is for international high schoolers and the teaching cohort are drawn from different disciplines. So I was there kind of representing theater and performance and there's a sound designer who's there, there's an architect who's there, there's a, wow. and so we're all, what we're doing in the two weeks prior to these international high schoolers coming to the site where we're hosting this camp is we're devising the courses that we're going to be leading these kids in, um, which was a profound experience for me and um, was able to make a lot of really beautiful connections that I think set me up to uh, exist in the city in a way. Um, but the jump was extremely hard. I mean, my, my whole first year in New York was just extremely raw and, um, I was emotionally raw and 
I just, I, I met someone recently that I knew in like the first few weeks I was in the city and we reconnected and I, I just found myself like profusely apologizing for who I was when I moved here because I, I was so um, afraid and was just trying to survive, I think. And when you're just trying to survive, there's like a lack of emotional depth and emotional intelligence that's available. Um, yeah. Understandably, I think. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard. I mean, the rhythm of the city is just totally impossible, and and to be yeah. to be an artist functioning inside a rhythm that is so go 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 all the time, um, it takes a, a lot. I mean, I feel like the pandemic has been such a gift because I have remained in the city, but I've been able to be inside myself and have this interior experience of the city in a way that I that wouldn't have been afforded to me if the world were just kind of going on as usual. The kind of meditative characteristics that people who've been fortunate with, fortunate with their health during the pandemic have often often kind of talked about, right? Yeah, it's a time of stillness. Stillness. Yeah, yeah. When um, when I moved to London, I moved to London from Edinburgh, and the first year, I think, was one of the hardest years of my life because uh, I'd gone from quite a human-sized city in Edinburgh to this sprawling place. I never saw my friends. I had no money. I was totally broke. Were you, were you, and, and I was just kind of doing jobs just to pay rent. I was working in bars and working in cafes. Were you doing kind of like day jobs as well? I always think artists who do other jobs, that's always the most interesting thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of where the, the set designer thing came from. Right. Because I had the skill set and um, yeah. I wanted to be in as many rooms as possible. I mean, that's something I knew um, and, and something also that I learned at school was that if I could, um, if I could just see when I got to the city, the rooms that people were holding and how they were governing those rooms and what the working styles were, um, I could start to carve out the ways in which I really wanted to make theater. And, and I learned a lot from that experience of just being a designer in the room, watching other directors work and being an assistant. Um, Two yeah. directors, two designers. Um, I but but I learned really fast that I'm not really that good at being a designer because I'm an extremely kind of a, I'm too self involved for the role. I think like I, I really right. am interested in story and I'm interested in being the the pilot. And it's really I mean being a designer is such a generous thing. Like you have to sit there and kind of um, allow. Uh, there's so much kind of um, it's a it's a meditative career in its own right is what I'm saying an, an extremely generous one and an extremely self and selfless one and I think the really good designers are people who um, can discover their voice through yielding to uh, other collaborators and that is certainly true of you know like a writer director relationship for example but I just couldn't really like yeah I just couldn't like that energy um, and then going home and like being on vector works and like trying to make things, it was just like total nightmare. So I knew I didn't want to do that. And I had other weird uh, jobs too. Like uh, I, I worked in a virtual reality exhibition at uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music where they, um, you put, uh, I, I was in uh, like a technician <laughs> that um, they, like it's a VR experience where you you walk in, they put the headset on, the, and I put the headset on you, and I put your goggles on, and the experience is like you're a tree, and you're going through the life cycle of being a tree. And so these people were standing there, and 
and the narrative is like you start in the soil. And so, and when they were in the soil, I um, had this nozzle that dis dispersed soil smells into the air. And I was meant to kind of like wave that under their nose, like wave the soil scent under their nose while they were in the soil. <laughs> and then they would, you know, grow into like a, a more full body tree. And then I kind of like waved the leaf smell under their nose. And then they grew into like a full bodied thing. And then the end of the narrative is that uh, you, it's a forest fire and you burn um, <laughs> there. So I uh, would wave the smoke at the end of it. Um, and it was just like a totally, it was a really bizarre thing, but that I was making money for a few months doing that. And I was scooping ice cream and I got, and then I got really anxious that I would get carpal tunnel um, because I'm uh, <laughs> Jewish and uh, hypochondriac. So I, I quit that after four months. And um, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of jobs that I, I think the reason I had so many day jobs was because I got really frantic that I would hurt myself in some way. And so I would move on to the next one. So being a writer is really good because I can sit in my room and, and just click clack and um, no one's, I'm not going to, yeah. That's, that's so brilliant. The, um, but you touched on earlier the speed of interest in your work from other people, uh, you know, was, was really surprising to you. It was extremely what? surprising. Oh, sorry. Go ask the question again. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like we're just talking. No, no, no. Forgetting that we're on a podcast and uh... that's okay. Don't worry. Um, what what um you said earlier the 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 level of interest, uh, interest and speed and in interest uh, in your work was really surprising. Quite shortly after you arrived in the city and started doing those workshops on P Peter and the Wolf, what happened? Tell us the story about what happened. Yeah. It. Um was a real, it was exciting. And it also put me into a huge uh, personal crisis in a way. I, um, I, that was my first play. And I was sitting in the offices of creative artists agency after writing my first play. And it's a, I think, you know, I've heard you actually speak about this before with, um, especially young women writers, but it's something that happens with young LGBTQIA plus 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 writers as well, right. which is that there's a new there's a new and and I think for artists of color, young artists of color, um, yeah, there's a real um, sense in the industry right now that is a sense of panic that we haven't been operating in a way that's been totally inclusive and we haven't been telling the stories that are actually really central to the culture, central to so many cultures for so long. And so the way of ameliorating that for them is by saying, okay, well, let me race and invite you into the room as quickly as possible. But the issue I sense is that the, you know, if you're going to invite someone to the table, the table has to be set properly for them to come in and experience it. And there's so much work that happens, um, especially in New York, that you're going to see it. It's extremely exciting to see a marginalized voice on the scale. It's also extremely evident in the production watching it that there hasn't been really deep thought that's gone into what it means to set a table for that artist to make their work and here and why and how do we allow that to happen. And so that I think is just kind of something that uh, everyone is still figuring out. But the... Yeah. The personal crisis I kind of entered was that um, I, I was finally able to put language to it recently with my um, psychotherapist, actually. Uh, and the, the crisis is that the professional advancement or my professional ambition, let me say this, I guess the, there was an immediate sense of gratification that came after writing my first work. And that immediate yeah. gratification came in the form of 
get it, uh, being getting interest from representatives, which to me was like, oh, when I'm 30, I might have that. I might have achieved that after writing five to seven plays or something like that. Yeah. And so what occurs, I think, for a young artist is that there is a conflation that happens. When someone takes such an immediate interest in your work, there's a conflation that happens of the career ambition with the creative ambition. And for a few years, I was in a place where I was getting attention and I was going on meetings. I, I went to, on two trips to LA and was just having like weeks full of meetings with Hollywood people who were interested in me after writing my first play. Like it's such a bizarre experience. And I, I don't even, I'm not, I'm hardly even calling myself a playwright yet. Like I don't even know what that really means. I don't know what my craft is or my practice is in any way, but I'm having this experience mm. and I'm, I'm spending these two or three years just extremely confused and traumatized about what it means to go on making work and what if what if I lose everything if I make something else and um really recently have I only started to be able to work on another play because it uh was a really traumatizing season and I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm not extremely grateful for those advancements, but it um, it's a really fragile period of an, of an artistic life and of a writing life. And um, there are certain people I think who are equipped to support an artist in that time. And I don't think representatives are those people. I don't think you sound ungrateful at all. You sound incredibly clear and lucid and really brilliant in that analysis. I, I kind of stopped using the word career as much as I can. I think it's a really poisonous word. And I can't, I talk about my working life for like the, the job stuff and the admin, but career carries within it such a, uh, exactly as you described, that impulse to continue and better. And, and you, you take your eye off the one thing you can change, which is the work. Mm -hmm. You can change the work. That's the one thing you've got responsibility for is the work. And, uh, yeah, and I think what happened is that the what I was realizing in my in my practice was that I felt so out of control over what this idea of a career was that suddenly there were all these people who I had written a play or I had, I, I had written a play and I was working on another one. And suddenly there were all these other people who were sitting at the table with me. But what I was realizing is what I was doing was, um, I described the experience as like clenching my hand, like in my writing was exerting all the control The I was trying to rest back control through the writing experience. And that ter that makes just like these extremely messy drafts that um, are totally unclear. And I've, I have no idea what I'm working on really because I'm trying to exert control over my personal life through the experience of writing, which, you know, ideally is something that's extremely gentle and slow and, um, and open. Mm. Let's talk about the work then. Uh, if we can talk about Coop and the process of making Coop. What, what, what was the starting point for that play? The starting point was an environment. I th the, the, the farm is um, something that is extremely um, trite and uh, like archetypal in a sense in the American mm. drama canon. You know, like Sam Shepard is writing all these works that are set in the middle of nowhere in deserts on farms. And Eugene O'Neill has a really kind of... Um, 
his plays are on farms. I, I don't really know what else to say about it, but they're, they're just a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> There's all these fucking farms. Yeah, yeah, there's like farms, farms. Well, it's just, and I think the farm, as I was, I was just thinking about for a while, like I think they're, I'm really drawn to animals and I, um, they're, the, the American farm, I think to me represents this, this confluence of really, really interesting themes about, the physical body, putting the physical body on the line in order to achieve certain things, and also the farm's relationship to capitalism, which is the source yeah. of, you know, this food industry and this difference between the kind of textural qualities of living on a farm, which I've done, and, you know, like the contemporary uh, pieces of society that consume what that farm creates. So I was really drawn yeah. to the location and... I, I knew I had all these past experiences that were extremely confusing and disorienting on farms. Like I had volunteered on this Appalachian farm in college um, for a, a few weeks and it was a Catholic farm and it was a really kind of perverted idea to do on my part because I, um, I'm Jewish and it's a really Catholic farm and they... Um, but I was always doing this kind of thing when I was young and I kind of was just reflecting, like, I can't wait to be able to do these things again, where I would just kind of sign myself up for things that were like the least interesting things possible for myself to spend time doing. Um, and like going to volunteer on a Catholic Appalachian farm was one of them. I, I'm like, I can't imagine a worse experience, but I was like, that sounds like something that I'll be able to use one day maybe. So I, I went and what it is, is not only are they, they Catholic and um, really wholesome, which is my nightmare, is that there's no, um, <laughs> there, there's no technology uh, on the farm. So you get there and your laptop and your phones and your watches, you lock in the car that you arrived in. <laughs> um, and there, what, it's meant to kind of like create this, you know, spiritual community where we're all each other have and we're, you know, like totally here, totally present with each other. And it did certainly... Um, do that but you know like my first day there we were on we went on this hike and you know everyone's just kind of like detoxing because no one has their cell phones and they take you on this hike and you're on the top of this mountain and you're like holding hands and someone's reading a catholic psalm or something and I was like what have I gotten myself into there are two weeks left of this and this is like I thought this would maybe happen two-thirds of the way through but we're all like holding hands on top of a mountain and this is the first day um so after that, I kind of just released into it and I was keeping a really um, intricate journal the whole time because I was meeting these people who were just like totally, you know, not my crowd um, who were like really interested in service um, as like service as like a religious idea. Um, oh. And that, I mean, those <laughs> obviously became really influential <laughs> to uh, the, the play. Um, there's like a frustration there, I think, between... Um, like a personhood and ideology is is one of the components i think what do you mean by personhood that's a word i've not heard before like um you yeah like the i i think as this you know protagonist is trying to find a sense of self in a very teenage way and and i think that mm. includes discovering sexuality and that includes discovering a relationship to a community that doesn't really exist um it's an abstract idea, but like the the kind of tension between the the kind of unruliness of that experience of puberty and coming into one's own self versus kind yeah. of like these 
large structures that have been in place since biblical times that are meant to tell you kind of how you're supposed to act in, um, in the world. And yeah, yeah. It's really beautifully captured in the play, I think. So you wrote your journal when you were there on the farm. Uh, were you were you thinking about writing it as a play, or was were you just uh, there to have the experience of of the farm? No, I, had you yeah. gone with a secret agenda? No, I hadn't gone with any agenda. I wasn't. Yeah, I I had just gone because, like I said, I thought it was going to be a really interesting experience, and um, and it was. But I, I went to Jewish summer camps my for eleven years, my entire upbringing, and. Um, I think I became interested really young in like what ritual is and and what ritual means and the the ways in which our lives are rituals even even for people who yeah. aren't religious and so so much ritual comprises just our basic uh, ways of going about the world and yeah, yeah so uh, no I didn't think I was going to make anything about it but reflecting on the experience it just felt you know, years later, it felt like a really fertile place to draw inspiration from. Because it was it was it was it years you you were you were there in college, but you wrote it. When did you start writing? Kuhn? Yeah, I, I I went to the farm my freshman year of college in 2014, yeah. and then I, I started writing yeah. Coop in 2018. Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, and I'm I'm just just with the kind of playwrights geekery interest in in that process did you return to the journals did you reread the journals or were you drawing from your imagination when you started making the play i didn't return to the journals because i think i i have been finding i have a really fraught relationship to research and that felt like a, right. a form of that to go back and kind of look at the words and i have such a a better time of making plays i think when i'm really drawing from an abstract place of memory and I'm pulling up in a very pure way what is coming through the sieve of my emotional memory of that experience. And I think it leads oh. to much more interesting explorations in a text. I, I'm, I'm also, I'm just, I'm, I'm really kind of like a curious person and an, and an academic person. And when you put like an essay or something in front of me or if I go back to my journals, which are these kinds of essays in a way, I just get really like buckled to them and, and feel really right. bogged down by um, all this external stimuli. It, right. makes, it, feel, it makes the act of writing the play feel really impossible because I'm, it's already difficult enough like uh, for me to have a, a single clear thought um, especially nowadays. Um, so if I'm, if I'm like going into the process, kind of inundating myself with more and more information, it, um, it just feels like I'm adding obstacles that don't need to be there really. So what did you do? What was the process of the actual writing of the play? Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's interesting, Simon, because I feel I've, I've heard you speak about your process in multiple contexts and it's extremely <laughs> lucid and like, uh, it's only because I've done it a lot. Yeah, you've done I've it so much. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just practice and it stops actually being true. It's no longer a true description of the process. Okay. It's just a true memory of the last time you answered that question. Right, 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 right. <laughs> totally, totally. You're just kind of like repeating the thing that worked, yeah, in conversation yeah. last time. Um, yeah, I, um, my, I mean, like, I have not arrived at a process that has brought me, like, reliable results at all. Um, and I, I actually, <laughs> I actually think that is part of the 
beauty of it is is all of the kind of things that are wasted and um yeah. I mean for every play that comes to fruition for me there is uh, like a hundred times that material that's just kind of like sitting around and because I'm just playing it feels like I'm in a sandbox really and I'm just like kind of playing mm. and like building something over here and like oh that doesn't really work and um but you know I hear like the the way you describe your process I think is like you have ideation and then you have like mulling period (laughs) and then research period and then it's like and then it's finally time to write the play and and I I have a memory about these things I hope you don't think I'm stalking you I just I have like a really firm memory of how people describe them like how they engage in their practice and then and then you like write your dialogue and it's really really fast I'm kind of writing like my I'm writing dialogue from the very beginning and I'm doing um what I what I call sprints, I guess, which are just kind of like me sitting down and just writing it in the way that it's coming out. And I get to yeah. like page 60 or so, and inevitably it's like I've given myself conventions that aren't sustainable for an entire play or something. <laughs> like just like stupid <laughs> things that I've put on that are kind of like, oh, that's clever, or like people will really mm. respond to that, or like, oh, I've never seen that done on stage before. And inevitably, like all those things are the things that are holding it back from actually being a draft. Um, so I do that over and over and over again, just kind of like sprinting with it for 60 pages or so, so in these kind of like bizarre ways. And then, you know, finally, once I'm able to kind of like listen to the material that's there, the conventions and the form arises really purely from the material that is just coming through. And that was very much the process on Coop. So I I was writing all these scenes between this older male figure and a younger kind of feminine character. And I could tell the feminine figure wasn't exactly a girl, like wasn't exactly a woman. And so I started being like, okay, well, this is, you know, someone who has gender confusion, gender dysphoria, experiences of gender dysphoria, which I was certainly having. And um, I can tell that they're speaking to this older man who's very kind of like settled in this kind of gendered experience. And so I was just kind of like allowing a lot of scenes to pass back and forth between them. And then I was like, oh, I'm realizing he's a dead person. And, you know, she is still living. and, um, And a lot of the scenes kind of had like a sexual tilt. And I was like, I'm not really interested in the incest direction because it's already on a farm. And I'm like, dear God, uh, we don't need anything else. That, you know, like everyone's making these shows about hillbillies and like, uh, you know, just like really feeling like they have a lot to say about like people who are impoverished. So I knew that that like wasn't, a, um, that was certainly so far from a component that I wanted to write. Um, but so I ended up with that section. And then I also ended up with this, I had a body of material about the young person and the uncle, the older man. And I had a body of material that was just kind of like the family talking to each other. And they all like the textures of those interactions were all kind of, they were so weird and felt like play acty and felt kind of like, um, like, like people who are speaking to each other, but they're aware that they're in a play speaking to each other as a family. And so I was like, I have that pocket too. And then the sexual nature of the uncle and uh, and main character, you know, section ended up turning into this like delivery boy section where she is kind of engaging with this man who looks exactly like her, and she is mm. kind of like asking him to kill her parents, but also then spit in her mouth. Um, so there are these three kind of like territories of the play. 
Um, and I was like, I don't know how these coexist together. They seem so weird tonally to exist side by side. And then I was like, well, if I just kind of like go like this and I just start like putting a structure, um, oh, or sorry. Yeah. Yeah. If I just start, I, I'm going to say that again because I was doing a gesture and I, you know, this podcast aren't a visual <laughs> medium. Yeah. If I start, I'm, I'm, <laughs> if I start cycling through them and, um, if I start putting them side by side, then I have this kind of weird kind of like cyclical structure that feels like it's also representing a bloodletting ritual. And I know that she wants to kill her parents and it became a really interesting thing that I never would have arrived at. I think if I hadn't just kind of like allowed myself to sprint with the material in a bunch of different directions. I love the extent to which the form of the play, the structure of the play itself communicates those central ideas. I think that's, that's really, really beautiful. Forgive my ignorance, has the play been, uh, what kind of life has the play had in New York? Uh, yeah, I, um, I directed a, a small independent production of it in a black box in March, in February, 2020, um, that ran, uh, we ran for three weeks on this thing called an equity showcase code, which is a nightmare. Um, what, what's an equity showcase Well, just code? the way that the union is set up in America, there are these things, I think they've actually gotten rid of it now since the pandemic, um, but the Actors' mm -hmm. Equity Union has this thing called a showcase code where you're only allowed to rehearse a certain amount of hours um, in advance of uh, a production run, which has something to do with the pay scale and protecting the actors and protecting their hours. But I was lucky to find like a really generous group of actors who are in my community who knew my work. And I decided I wanted to direct it because I had a, I felt like I had a vision for it. I, I don't know if I'm really interested in doing anything like that again, just because I think the distance between the writer and the work is extremely useful. And I think like yeah. the intervention of a really smart director is really useful to a good production. Um, but it was a, it was a lot of fun and it was a huge growing experience for me. And, um, we ran for three weeks and then our last weekend of shows, which was sold out were canceled. Um, because the, on March 14th, I remember really distinctly was the moment in which, you know, all these independent theaters were announcing that they were, well, first there was Scott Rude and saying, oh, well, you can come see this show for $50. I know it's a pandemic, but you can come see this show for very, very cheap. Um, and which was kind of like this like mother courage situation that was occurring where it was like someone trying to like get as many as, as many people as possible into a theater in, in this moment of just like total uncertainty and um and and darkness. And then um all the independent theaters say like leading the way actually and saying we need to close and getting archival photographers and videographers in there and then it was over. Yeah. But it's 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 coming to the Stuck market, yeah. Which is really exciting. What form is it going to take? What, how are you going to uh, recreate or restage it uh, uh, on on the Stuck market website? What, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. So um, so I'm I, I'm actually extremely removed from that process uh, because mm -hmm. the ways the Germans work, I'm learning are um, I'm treated like a princess, which I love, and everyone's extremely nice <laughs> to me. Everyone's extremely nice to me, but are kind of like, well, you kind of stay over there. And, um, right. and so I'm given a really comfortable chair, but you kind of stay over there and um, we'll <laughs> work on it. And then, and I have no idea what um, it's going to look like. If I'm going to be honest, there's this, there's this director named Charlotte Sprenger, who's really exciting, who's going to be working on it. And 
uh, the group of actors they chose is really attractive, but it'll be a staged reading and, and that'll be live streamed. Yeah. Great. Uh, in German or in English? It'll be in German. The um, I, yep. I am now published with Sorkamp Theater Verlag, and they have translated my first two plays. And so that translation by Robin Detia will be performed with English subtitles. Great. Yeah. I really, I really look forward to, to, to watching that. And um, I'm really moved and inspired by the idea that having gone into this maelstrom of, of, of kind of like um, kind of capitalist fascination in the wake of Peter and the Wolf, you said you're coming out of that and you're starting to be able to make work again for the first time. Yeah. <laughs> is that a, is that, <laughs> that's fucking brilliant. Well, well yeah, yeah, theater work, theater work. I have been white, I've been working on some, you know, like screenwriting things because that has felt right. like the most available medium. And I think yeah. I'm kind of like, oh God, Sam, like you're so responsive and reactionary. But I think it's just a natural thing that the artistic body does, which is like responding to the mediums that are available. And I'm I'm sure. realizing how much seeing other people's performances is so central to my artistic practice and inspiration and yeah but I've, I've been able to start writing theater recently right. yeah did you before we talk about the theater uh the theater you, you you started to to make and you might be right in the foothills of it and not ready to talk about which is fine have you enjoyed doing the television work and the film work that's a complicated question um <clears throat> yeah i i have enjoyed the process i have enjoyed the process of discovering my artistry inside that form i will say that um, but I'm also learning a lot about the, I'm, I'm learning I, without, without being too pessimistic, without being too cynical, I'm realizing the way I'm having a very deep awakening about this, the ways in which the systems that I don't like that underwrite the theatrical production process are just as if not more evident in the in the kind of film production process and capitalism has so much to do with that and um yeah i think it's something artists have come up against for centuries and centuries which is that you, people who are doing things that feel different from what's been done before feels extremely scary and yeah there are luckily some people I've met um, who are who I'm now close with who who work in that industry who um, who have been real kind of forces for for supporting work from from identities that haven't been represented in storytelling and for me I, I guess I just want to say that I think like I'm not someone who's really interested in identity politics I identify as a non-binary person I'm a queer person but I don't I I'm interested in that in so much as it creates like a really good emotional story. Um, mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of, there's this like trap of work that becomes really diluted um, because it, because the American theater, the American film industry wants the conversation to be so reductive um, that it ends up just presenting like a news story really about like, this is what it's like to be me. And also there's this kind of like, uh, call almost for a, for a queer person's work, for any, any marginalized person's work to be extremely autobiographical in a way. Like I'm not allowed to write a crime thriller. Right. I'm not allowed to write kind right. of like a bank heist. Um, right. Because I'm only meant to really speak to my experience because that hasn't been huh. held 
that hasn't been heard for so long. Um, so that's just something I'm, I'm coming up against. And uh, yeah, yeah. You speak about it with profound clarity. Are you enjoying returning to the theatre? I am. Um, it's. Uh, it feels like an. It feels like a really kind of like extreme act of delusion because there's just no no real theater that's happening right now. But but I, but at the same time, I kind of say to myself like, when when hasn't it been an act of delusion to kind of write a play? So why not? Um, but there's. Yeah. You know, I've been. I've been really. I, I, it's actually. It's set in the UK, uh, Simon. And, that's <laughs> and, and that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, have you spent time in the UK, or is it an imaginary UK? No, I've I studied in I've studied in England in a town called Grantham for a semester. Margaret Thatcher's town, and <laughs> yeah. you, and, Andy, Andy War, you're like a mix between Andy Warhol and Margaret Thatcher. That's what everyone everyone says that about me all the time. Yeah, um, yeah, everyone's kind of like they read my place and they're like, "You're just you're this really distinct mix of Margaret Thatcher and Andy Warhol." Um, what the hell were you doing in Grantham? My, so my, my, my American university in Indiana has this satellite school that is a manor <laughs> called, uh, I, they acquired, they acquired it in the early 70s. It's a manor. It's called Harlixton Manor. And they, uh, wow. I guess, purchased it. And then, you know, it's like the kind of satellite study abroad uh, site. Um, so you go there, wow. the theater students go there for a semester because... They're, they call it a grow-up semester. I put in air quotes um, because you go, you go, yeah, you go abroad and somehow like drinking a lot and um, be, being inside this manner is meant to really kind of like make you grow up in a way. Um, and uh, I'm studying with, you know, English professors who are teaching us Shakespeare and I'm also studying like violent acts of terrorism because that's just like the nature of a liberal arts education, I guess. And, um, but kind of all, all, all the students are, you know, we were like, oh my God, a, a, a four or three day learning week. That's so exciting. Like that, the British school system is so cool. And like, we can have these like six day travel excursions on the weekends. That's nice. Yeah, but everyone was kind of going to fancy places. And I was like going into London and seeing um, experimental theater at the Barbican and at the Royal Court, actually. <laughs> right. Oh, that's great. It's lovely that you're, you're on, the, on our podcast. And that's, that's fantastic. Bring you, bring you to your spiritual home. What, what, um, is it too early to say what you're writing about the UK or why you're writing about the UK? What is it about? about the UK that's captured your your kind of imaginative exploration? Yeah, um, uh, I have been really trying to work on a play about the far right generally for uh, a year and a half, two years. Um, I, rem yeah. like, I remember the conversation where I first brought up the idea to one of my friends and I just haven't been able to write it ever since, like I was saying. And I actually realized that by looking at a, a country that's not my own, it's allowing me to kind of release into the conversation in a way... <laughs> Um, that is, so it's also a period piece. So it's set in the eighties in the UK and that, um, that has allowed me to have enough kind of like abstract distance from the current conversation in America. But I, I discovered this, uh, historical figure called Nikki Crane, who was one of the most brutal street fighters of the far left or far right in the, in the British movement. Um, and he was this tall kind of Paul Bunyan guy. He was totally hairless. He was a skinhead. And he, um, he was also living a double life as a gay man. And he uh, came out really publicly on channel four in this documentary called out um, where it was like about the skinhead Nikki Crane, who's, who's finally come to terms with the sexuality and he is going to apologize um, and be on television. 
And there's like a 30 second part of the interview that's actually still online. But so he came out and got totally obviously um, rejected from the far right and lost contact with everyone he knew in in that community, Um, acquired AIDS and acquired HIV in in 1992 and died of of AIDS-related complications in 93, which I thought was like the most bizarre... I mean, it has all these echoes of a Greek tragedy because you're living with this kind of sense of reversal for an entire life. And then there's this moment of recognition and then there's the kind of like downfall that occurs afterward. And and I have real questions about what it means to... Uh, I have real questions about what it means to apologize. And I've, I have real questions about uh, what it means to... Um, to change to change your ways and, and also what, what cancellation means and like what that means in contemporary culture and, and how the conversation around identity and around past harm, can it prevent us from actually moving forward as a society, I guess, uh, is one of my, one of my questions that I, that's been on my mind. Yeah. It's so funny because you said, uh, you, uh, you may be self-conscious about the lucidity or clarity with which you could talk about your process, but I've rarely met a writer who speaks with such a level of intelligence and thoughtfulness and communicates that thought with such clarity. It's a real, real honor to speak with you, Sam. And not only do you have that clarity and that lucidity and intelligence of thought, but you can do it while my family is shouting to one another in the background. It makes me very sad that we're not in the Royal Court studio and then we could just go and hang out in the Royal Court bar or go and watch a play at the Royal Court. Uh, and then just when they kind of finally stop shouting, the whole world seemed to be drilling. So thank you for your patience in the face of the noise that I brought and thank you much more for beauty of your play and the dark forces that underpin it and the clarity and intelligence with which you've talked about your work. Sam Max, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. You've been listening to a special episode of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast in association with the Stuckermarkt 2020-21 at the Berlin Theatre Treffen with me, Simon Stevens. It was produced by Emily Legg and Anushka Warden for the Royal Court Theatre. All five of the pieces talked about on this series, the five shows selected by the jurors of this year's Stuckermarkt, are available online at the Theatre Treffen website from the 18th of May 2021. There's a link for the website on the show notes. The music for this series was by and given with permission from the brilliant Derek. Derek.